spent an hour praying because I'd signed up to pray seven to eight on the last Saturday of the month, last Saturday of the month. Now am I excused next Saturday? <laughs> Boy, isn't it strange what we do? <laughs> I want to give a little report on the conclave because I know many of you prayed. This was our 28th year to meet. The conclave is an annual gathering of elders from New Testament churches from around the nation. Uh, we've had 98 different churches whose elders have come to the conclave. This year we had 18 churches represented. A very beautiful time. This year it was interesting how many of the elders who came were really rather battered. Real spiritual warfare they'd been encountering and came fairly well beat up, frankly. But the Lord moves so beautifully during the conclave. Each day we read papers uh, all throughout the morning, discuss them. The afternoons are open for the men to meet together, develop relationships, pray together, and so on. And then at, in the night, we have the elders uh, one by one from churches that sit. They tell what's going on in their church, their personal lives. And then we sit silently until the God, the Lord begins to move. And one by one, people come and pray. Groups come and pray. Prophetic words are given. And this year was just a joyous thing to see how men who came with heavy burdens, men who came somewhat beat up, every single one of them left differently. Praise God's name. I had a number of emails from men just telling the difference that our time together made. And that's no credit to anyone. That strictly, of course, is the presence of God. Praise his name. In the last uh, three or four decades, there's been a lot of attention given to the topic of speaking in tongues. Tongues has been the point of all kinds of controversy. Some have argued that everybody should, perhaps must speak in tongues. Some have argued everybody can speak in tongues. Some have said if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Some have said no one really can speak in tongues. Some say tongues is of the devil and those who speak in tongues are possessed. Some have said Mormons speak in tongues and since they have a distorted Christology, then certainly tongues can't be of God. I've even heard some say tongues is a manifestation of mental illness because in some institutions you hear mentally ill people babbling the same way those who speak in tongues babble. On and on we could go describing the various arguments that have ensued over this topic. Most of them been a lot of heat with very little light. But uh, this morning I want to talk about a subject that I think is more important 
because of comments Jesus made on this topic, because it has such great potential for good and such great potential for damage. This morning we want to talk about the tongue. And our primary text is James chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. We all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold the ships also, though they are great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, whichever the inclination of the pilot desires. So the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of such great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Every species of beasts and birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Therefore, putting aside, pardon me, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come forth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be in this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. It's interesting to me to note that our Lord and the Apostles and the writers of Scripture, as they began to talk about speech, they used the organs of speech to represent speech. For example, if you'll notice in Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, now the whole earth used the same language and uh, the same words. It literally says in the Hebrew that the whole earth was of one lip. Isn't that interesting? And then as we continue on, the Lord came down to see the city. Behold, there are people. They all have the same language. Hebrew says the same lip. Come, let us go down and confuse their lip. Verse 7. Isn't that interesting? Many times in Scripture we find lip used as a term to describe speech. The mouth is another one that's used frequently. Seventy-five times in the New Testament the mouth is used uh, to represent speech. Also the tongue, as we noticed in James. 
You know, I got to thinking about it. If the New Testament, if the Bible had been written in this particular decade, they would also have to say fingers because of Facebook. <laughs> Isn't that true? Facebook. I, I, Gordon and I right now are dealing with one of the messiest situations in a church that you can imagine. And one of the problems has been all the stuff that's been written on Facebook, gossip on Facebook, is, is just wrecking a church that is bearing fruit. Sad to say that that can take place. So what can be said about the tongue? Human speech can be used for good, can be used for God's glory, can also be said about Facebook. It can be used for God's glory or blasphemy. When God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. One of the ways in which we humans have been made in the image of God is the ability to express ourselves in cognitive speech. Now, there's been a lot of attention given to the way dolphins can communicate with each other and some observations, same thing about the primates. But none of these creature, creatures can in cognitive speech express themselves the way that humans can do. This is one of the ways in which we humans, uniquely of all of God's creations, have been made in the image of God. Speech binds us together. It's a means whereby we experience relationships. For instance, if I walked up to Matthew, he was standing there, and I just stood and stared at him. What would he think? <laughs> Say something, Jim. You know, so it, it speech, this is how we relate to each other. And, and we, once we speak, the relationship begins to take place. Some years ago, Eric Byrne wrote what I think is one of the most interesting analysis of human relationships. The book is entitled Games People Play. And in it, he does a wonderful, I think, uh, way of, of describing transactional analysis, the different dynamics of it. And one of the games he points out that we people play is in rituals. And in the West, there are greeting rituals. And he discusses the fact that everyone from infancy has a need to be stroked. But in our culture, because at least until recently, we didn't quite touch each other, and so we stroked each other with speech. And if you meet someone, you say, hi, how are you? And he says, fine, how y'all doing? And uh, if he doesn't speak back, you think, what's the matter with him? You see, you stroked him, and he didn't have that extra stroke. And if there's someone that you see every day, just that four-stroke exchange, let's say you go on a vacation, had each other for a month, suddenly you see each other, and so you may have five, six, or seven strokes to reestablish that relationship that hasn't existed. Have you ever been in an elevator with somebody else? 
and you're going up 12 floors and you stand there in absolute silence. Isn't that awkward? You know, you want to speak. At least you want them to acknowledge your presence so you speak to them so they'll speak back. Speech. This is the way that we participate in this ritual that is so important in life. But that need so often leads us into some dangerous areas. Language is a means of speaking, but language also forms us. For instance, if I were to drop my Bible, I would say, I dropped the Bible. Now there's one language within I'm remotely familiar in which you cannot say, I dropped the Bible. You have to say, the Bible fell out of my hand. It's not my fault. And that way of thinking affects that culture as far as taking responsibility is concerned. It expresses that culture. So language is a means whereby we express ourselves, but language itself does have some way of forming us. Speech, in a large way, reveals who we really are and what's going on inside of us. Our Lord said in Luke 6:45, the good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. His mouth speaks from what fills his heart. Matthew 12:34 and following, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you, this is something to think about, isn't it? I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified. By your words we'll be condemned. Now, when I was a boy, we didn't have, of course, television. We didn't have CDs. We didn't have tapes. What we had were Victrolas. And in the Victrola, you know, you cranked it and you wound the spring. And then you put a record on, which I didn't know then. Now I know we're 78s. <laughs> and then you took the... you. you moved a lever so it started moving and you put the arm on it and it started to play. When I was a little boy, young boy, don't remember how old, say six or seven years of age, sitting in church one day, the preacher was preaching about the judgment day. And he said, you know, God today is creating a record of every one of us individually of every word we've ever said. And in the judgment day, God's going to put that giant record on his giant Victrola. And he's going to lower the arm. And everybody in the whole world is going to sit there and listen to every word you ever said. You know, that scares you go down the aisle when something like that's uh, laid out in front of you. And I don't know whether or not uh, that image is true. I doubt if God has a Victrola. But you know what we say and how we say it is one quite accurate litmus test of what sort of person we are inside. Matthew 12, 34, you know, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, said there, you know, your heart is far from me, so on. Sooner, you know, people who are evil can speak good words, but sooner or later, their words 
will betray them. So what we say and how we say it is a, really a litmus test of what's in our heart. Now I've told you about this before, but let me tell you again, because for me personally, this illustrates that point so carefully. When I was in my teens and earliest years as an adult, I had a tremendous problem with anger. I loved to fight, and I didn't care who won. Fighting was just fun. And I got in a lot of fights. An example of my anger, one day uh, Barbara's best friend, a, a young lady, uh, Clarine Boyd, uncle was having a birthday, and all the girls just ran out and uh, teasingly kissed him on the cheek. I was so inflamed, I ran four city blocks screaming at the loud of my voice, if I hadn't, I would have hit somebody. <laughs> that she would kiss a man jokingly on the cheek. Anger. During those years, I had a tremendous problem with cursing. And I would plead with God to somehow enable me to not curse. And I'd plead with him early in the morning, and then I'd walk four miles to work to the railroad, and then I'd, I hadn't been there ten minutes, and stuff would start coming out. One day, as I was working at my job on the railroad, I was suddenly noticed I wasn't cussing. <laughs> and then I realized the Lord, in his marvelous, sovereign grace, had plucked the anger out of my heart. From that day to this, it's almost impossible for anything to make me angry. Frustrated, another story. For example, as Mark's agent, I was signing him up for Obamacare. I started last October. <laughs> and every time we'd go, I'd get so far, the website would break down. Finally, after weeks and weeks, I got it to work and got him enrolled. And then it said, call the insurance company to find out what your premium will be. I called the insurance company and the Obamacare website had failed to inform them of the tax credits. Oh my, so what am I gonna do? Well, you have to cancel and start all over. Okay, cancel. We can't cancel, you have to go back to the website to cancel. So I went back to the website, problem after problem, so I finally got on the phone and called them on the phone, and we went through the whole process, we got the last, and she said, the cancel button won't work. <laughs> so I did it again. three times, I went through this same process, and all three times, the cancel button wouldn't work. Finally, along in January, <laughs> you know, things started kind of getting straightened out, and then the insurance company said, well, we have the new policy with the tax credits, but we still have the old one, and we can't activate this one until that one's canceled. And so, I mean, I went through this. It was just the second week of May finally got it straightened out and went up and paid an extra month's premium just to quit fussing with it. But at one point, I said to one of those representatives, you know, I haven't cussed. I haven't cussed since probably 1950. Well, I want you to know you're sure getting me close to it. <laughs> uh, 
clearly my heart wasn't right. <laughs> I had to repent. <laughs> I had to repent. James 1, 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. <laughs> the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You know, one important statement that James makes in this verse is, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And he was writing to Christians. He was acknowledging the fact that even after conversion, there still is something in all of us that still needs to be sanctified. It's interesting to notice the different figures at the writer of the New Testament to use to describe conversion. John uh, uses the idea of birth. He uh, quotes the words of Jesus referring to the new birth. And in the new birth, it's not that God takes the old man and patches him up, but he gives you a new life. Paul uses adoption. And, of course, in Romans 6, he talks about being baptized, you're immersed, you bury the old man, and then you come forth to walk in newness of life. And even though that's true, the old man is constantly working to get resurrected. Paul had a Damascus Road experience, and as he later recounted it, as recorded in Acts 22, 16, Ananias said to him, Why do you delay? Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He did that, and he was a new man. And yet, many years later, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. <coughs> Paul said, I still have to deal with the fact I'm a human being and sanctification is a process. And invariably, I'd say for most, and dare I say all of us, evidence of the fact that some of that fleshly spirit remains is expressed in our speech. And I'm certain that some, and perhaps most of us, maybe all of us, it's important that we recognize that challenge submitted to God that as James said, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. We have this wonderful gift of speech. You folks have Facebook. I determined not to. Now, you know, an interesting thing happened some years ago when Gordon and I were in Stanton, Virginia, for a Conclave Planning Committee meeting, had a dinner for the Planning Committee meeting and the church leaders, and Robin Bales and I, he on the guitar and I on the clarinet, gave a little concert to the leaders. I didn't know it, but Gordon took a picture. When I got back 
in the office one day, Bill said, I see this picture that Gordon put on of you and Robin, and it's on Facebook. I said, well, that's interesting. I don't have a Facebook account. Bill said, yes, you do. Let me show you. To this day, I don't know how I got a Facebook account. <laughs> I must have somehow, when I was signing up for something else, done it. But I, I never look at Facebook. I mean, I, I got a thing in the mail. A while back it said, you have 43 requesting friends. I thought, now, some have 43 friends, but 43 friends requesting something. Are they all requesting the same thing? Or is each one requesting something different? I'm going to stay off of Facebook. Facebook's a wonderful tool. What do we do with it? Some, like Gordon, use it every morning to send out a text. Others use it to blab about stuff that should never be said to anybody. Colossians 4.6. What are we going to do with it? Let your speech always be with grace. As though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth or on Facebook, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is ahead even Christ. By the way, this is referring to correct doctrine, if you notice the context. We speak correct doctrine lovingly to each other. Hebrews 10.24-26, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Ephesians 5.18 and following, do not get drunk with wine, that's dissipation. Keep on being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. In other words, a wonderful way to use speech is to build up each other, to encourage each other. Sunday morning, the Lord's Supper, isn't that beautiful? Singing songs, yes, hearing the Word of God, but you know what? The few minutes that we take to babble <laughs> as we greet each other. 
What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. You notice that passage in Hebrews 10 said we encourage each other, and the idea is so that we don't willfully fall into sin. I want to encourage you so you don't willfully fall into sin. Hope you do the same thing with me. Marvelous thing that we can use our, our words, our speech, perhaps Facebook, <laughs> to build each other up in our walk with the Lord. Boy, what a great difference there is between that and gossip that is so often almost endemic in every church. Let me think of a few ways that we can use speech negatively just to alert ourselves. First of all, as we said, gossip and slander. Colossians 3.8 Now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. The Greek there can also mean filthy speech from your mouth. You know, there's some people who somehow feel inadequate in themselves. And the only way that they can elevate themselves is to pull somebody else down. And so you do all you can to destroy that person's reputation and that character. Have you ever seen a dog find a dead animal and it already stinks and the dog starts eating it and then lays down and wallows in it? Wow, I have more than once. It's disgusting and yet that's something a dog just can't keep from doing whenever it finds such a condition. Frankly, depraved human nature is a lot like that dog. There's just something in depraved human nature that wants to feed off of garbage. We uh, see a television show, kind of a comedy, and there's somebody, oh, tell me all the dirt. We laugh because isn't that true to life? There's just something about human nature. When we lived ministering in country churches, we had a party line. Don't know if any of you ever had a party line. In other words, maybe 10 people have the same line. And when, and everybody had a particular ring. It went, if you were number one, it went ring, you were to pick it up and answer. If you, it went ring, ring, and you were number two, you were to pick it up and answer. However, <laughs> whoever picked it up and answered, if there were ten people that had that same line, all the other nine could too. Boy, I'll tell you what, sometimes Sunday morning in church it was something when folks had overheard what somebody else was talking about, especially when they had gossiped about the one that was listening. And unfortunately, Facebook. <laughs> same kind of thing can happen. Some years ago I heard a story, probably not true at all, but it's still a good illustration, of a woman who called the preacher and said, you know, God has convicted me of how I gossiped about a particular woman. Is there any way I can undo that? He said, come on over to the church building, we'll talk about it. She came over to the church building and he got a pillow and they went up, took her up to the bell tower and he opened the pillow and let all the feathers go. 
he said, now go gather up all the feathers. She said, I can't. Same thing is true, he said, of your gossip. As much as you want to, there's no way you can pull it all back and undo the damage you've done. Sometimes, you know, we talk about gossipy old women. Let me tell you something. I've been a preacher 62 years. And for many years, there was a Monday lunch preacher's uh, luncheon. And so I went to those year after year after year. I want to tell you what. There's no gossip in the world greater than what goes on in a preacher's luncheon. It's not just gossipy old women. (laughs) You see, it's something that all of us need to guard. What about lying? Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And then remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your nay be nay. And right before that, he said, you know, don't swear by God of heaven, don't swear by the earth, it's footful, but footstool, but let your yes be yes, your nay be nay. Anything that is more of these, Jesus said, comes of evil. In other words, you should develop such a reputation for honesty that you don't need to swear an oath. That when you say yes, people know it's yes. (laughs) When you say no, they'll know it's no because you are impeccable in your honesty. Now that warning of Jesus is really in line with the third of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of Jehovah your God in vain. Jehovah will not lead him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And taking an oath is taking God's name in vain. Frankly, I am saddened at times when I hear young people Young people who are supposed Christians and members of the church say, oh, God, this, God, that, oh, God, you should have seen it. You may think that speech is cool, but I assure you the God of heaven doesn't. His name is sacred. His name is holy. Revelation 21.8, for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. On and on we could go. I'm sure you could think of many things to add to this list of how our speech, our Facebook, can be used for evil. But what about positive use? We've already talked about blessing and encouraging one another. But also to tell the world the good news about salvation. Now, we hear every now and then the state saying that Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. No one has ever been able to find any place Francis of Assisi ever said that. The first time that was ever, the first record anyone ever has of that ever being spoken is in 1993 in a book by a man named Steve Sorengren. It's been repeated over and over again, but there's no evidence 
he ever said that. But even if he did say it, it's a bad saying. You cannot preach the gospel without words. You can show the love of God. You can perhaps open people's hearts through good works. But it is only through the verbal communication concerning sin, man's lost state, heaven and hell, the cross of Jesus, and salvation. That's only going to be communicated through words. We should be in prayer, every one of us. But God will help us to be sensitive to those opportunities when we can speak the words of Jesus to heal the souls of people. We can use speech for thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. As I was thinking about the word this morning, I tried to go down the road of preparing a word for Memorial Day, something along that theme, but it seemed that every time I'd start down the road, I'd get blocked. It just wasn't God's will. But I want to say this, I am thankful that I live in America. I'm thankful for those people, those men, those women who paid with their lives, who today are quadriplegics, that I can have the life I have. I'm thankful that on October 5, 1930, I was born in Muskogee, General Hospital, Muskogee, Oklahoma instead of on some garbage dump in Mexico City, Cambodian refugee camp, some Syrian refugee camp. God's grace, as Bill said this morning at the, at the as you've heard, uh, Lord's Supper, God's grace is expressed beyond description through the cross of Christ. But in this world, for me, very close to that is the fact that I was born here. And I thank God for that. I thank God for that. I thank God for that. And not only that, not only born in America, but not born in a Detroit slum, <laughs> but to a stable family in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Thank you, Father. We can use our tongue to express adoration and praise. You know, there's just no possibility of ever being able to, to grasp the full identity of God. Uh, I've said a number of times, maybe you've heard me say it, if I could only ever have an experience like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, wouldn't that be something? I saw the Lord high and lifted up and had this robe on and the tail end of it was in the temple where I was and hear all these creatures singing, wouldn't it be something? I'll tell you, if I ever had a vision like that, I'd never sin again. Ah, Lord. Oh, reverence. Sad to say, in so many church services, is totally missing. 
And I'll not judge those churches where that's true, but I have to admit I'm grieved. Reverence, awe, praise of God. Well, in closing, let me just say, let's remember the exhortation in James 3. I had an aunt who lived, she died a month before she was 105. She was really my second mother. She and my uncle could have no children because of a physical condition. And so when I was born, they went to the hospital and said to my mother and father, since we have no children, may we share yours. And so I grew up with two sets of parents, my mother and my dad, my aunt and my uncle. When I was a baby, I couldn't say Aunt Elizabeth, so she became Aunt Biddy. <laughs> and that's how the whole family knew her, is Aunt Biddy. I'm indebted to her. She's the one that saw to it that I went to Sunday school every Sunday. She was a marvelous Bible teacher. And really, I'll have to say, it was through her influence that early on, I came to Jesus. Sitting with her not long before death, she said, Jim, my morning prayer every day is Psalm 1914. That's a fitting close for this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Psalm 1914. That's a fitting close for this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to thy sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer.